to introduce to you Alton Pollard today. Alton is the new president at Louisville Seminary. Prior to that, he served 11 years at Howard University in Washington, D.C. as a director of Black Church Studies and chair of the American Religious Cultures. Oh, that was at Emory University. And you were also dean at Howard University, right? And uh, he taught at Wake Forest University and St. Olive College. Before that, he said his wife could only handle one winter in Minnesota, so they had to move to North Carolina. <laughs> He's earned degrees from Duke University and Harvard Divinity School and Fisk University. And um, what I love is um, not that it's bad to be Presbyterian, but he's the first non-Presbyterian president of a Presbyterian seminary. So in this space of post-denominationalism, when people are really about what is, what is my faith about, not being attached to a certain institution, Alton is really leading us forward and joining uh, with, with us um, in creating that new future of the church. And Louisville is a wonderful place to be, always um, innovating in ministry. So welcome, Alton. It's all yours. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I want to thank Jenny for the invitation to be here this morning. And I especially want to thank all of you who are a part of the Valley Presbyterian Church for welcoming me so warmly this morning. I've met so many of you coming in the sanctuary and walking up the pathway and I, I, I said to Jenny, everybody's got name tags on. I'm, I'm not familiar with that experience so it's, it's good to be able to look at people and actually know who they are because they have name tags on. So it's good to be here. You have two of the texts, if you will, that I'm drawing on this morning as I bring you greetings from Louisville Seminary. I've learned in the three months now that I have been uh, president that it's not Louisville, uh, but it is Louisville. Uh, so I was cor corrected uh, on many occasions as I arrived in the, in the city. And so I think I have it down now, uh, David. I'm trying to, trying to do better. Um, it is, <laughs> it, it is good to see um, faces with whom I'm familiar that I have met recently and faces that I am meeting for the first time today. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge my very dear and longtime friend. She does not like to hear this, but uh, Jean Mitchell and I go back 40 years. She was just a baby at the time, <laughs> but um, she is now all grown up and, and uh, 
in all seriousness, she is one of the people that is nearest and dearest to me and to uh, our family. She is also the godmother to our daughter. So she lives in the area and she's a graduate of that institution up the street there in Palo Alto. So uh, it's good to, good to uh, be able to spend a little time with her. The text is a very simple one from the good book. And I will simply share it in my own words. First Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an account of the hope that lies within you. Always be ready to give an account of the hope that lies within you. And you see in the program, of course, that my theme for the day, my title is God Has a Dream. And I think when you look at the words that are listed in the program from the Archbishop and from Martin Luther King, I think that this ought to be pretty self-explanatory. But sometimes we do forget that God dreams too, that the dreams are not ours alone, but that God has a dream for all of us that is bigger than any of us can imagine. Allow me to share just a few more words about my personal biography. I was born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so when we went to St. Olaf College as my first academic teaching experience, Minnesota was no big deal to me, but it turned out not to be the case for my beloved, who was from coastal Georgia, and uh, didn't go so well. <laughs> I'm the oldest of three children. My parents' roots are deep in the rich alluvial soil of the Mississippi Delta. I'm going to take my time for a few minutes here because I want to be sure that you understand the gravitas of what I'm about to share with you. Along with countless other black Americans, my mother and father left Mississippi in 1955. For those of you who are old enough, you may remember what happened that summer. There was a lynching. It was one of hundreds that took place across the South in those days, but this one in particular was galling. It was in Money, Mississippi, and his name was Emmett Till. My parents grew up very close to that area, and literally in the weeks that followed his lynching, they elected to leave Mississippi along with many other people. Many of my relatives migrated north to St. Louis and Chicago and other points north in search of the elusive American dream. 
Others came west to California, locating anywhere from Los Angeles to points between in Sacramento. As a collegian, I attended Fisk University, as Jenny has said, in Nashville, where I met my life partner, Jessica Bryant, from St. Mary's, Georgia, the best thing in my life. <laughs> Jessica's a high school counselor. We have two adult children, a son named Brooks and a daughter named Asha, and they are the joys of our life. Brooks is married to Shakira, and they have a nine-week-old son. That means Jessica and I became grandparents for the first time just a short while ago, and in the nine weeks that Quint has been here, we call him Quint because his name is Alton Brooks Pollard V. <laughs> so you get Quint, okay? So in the nine weeks that he has been here, I've already been home three times. Um, they live in Washington, D.C., and I have found my way to the airport as often as I can uh, to go and see uh, the newest member of our family. Our daughter Asha is a creative artist, graphic designer and entrepreneur living her best life in LA. Before I joined Louisville Seminary this fall, as you've already heard, I was at Howard University School of Divinity where I served as dean. The year was 2007 when Jessica and I left Atlanta and Emory University and we moved to Washington, D.C. The quadrennial campaign for president of the United States was in full swing. Senators Hillary Rodham Clinton and Barack Obama were in a close race for the Democratic nomination. And the late Senator John McCain led a crowded Republican field. Politics were not only intense nationally, but they were intense at the local level. Jessica and I quickly learned that the District of Columbia is a misnomer, that it actually should be called the Districts of Columbia for it was administratively divided into council wards of eight and politically divided along democratic or demographic fault lines that appear to be innumerable. DC is a city where urban development and investment displaces people and where power and privilege, disparity and distress, inequity and inequality, systemic and strategic neglect, and the scandal of federal taxation without representation are the order of the day. Jessica and I saw up close the sweeping kind of changes now commonplace across these United States. The uprooting of established residents and renters many of whom were aged, disregarded, black, and brown, and white. And they 
were replaced by the arrival of earnest young people, mostly white, as the new and desired occupants of the city. Every time Jessica and I went to an open house, because we were renting at the time, we looked at the prices of the most ramshackle homes, and we only could see sticker shock. Eventually, we moved to Maryland because we could not afford to live in Washington, DC. But there were others who could. And we understood how it was that the city was heralding its proud renaissance, its economic vitality, which came with a population adjustment. The history of D.C.'s urban makeover dates back to the late 1990s when, for the first time in decades, an infusion of development dollars poured into the city. Traditional family dwellings were converted to luxury apartments and condo units. Abandoned houses were renovated or torn down. Foreclosed properties were rehabbed and sold. News housing starts exploded. Entire city blocks gave way to microenterprise. The fruits of revitalization were everywhere, almost. Black Washingtonians were largely excluded from the preferred lending practices and housing opportunities now being made widespread. Beset by rising property taxes and unscrupulous mortgage lenders, the black population soon found itself on the decline in the midst of urban plenty. Not so long ago, I think the year was 2016, it was before an election that took place in November of that year. Not so long ago, we the people prematurely celebrated the maturity of our democracy. The election of a two-term black president and the popularity of the then first family were proof positive that as a nation, we had overcome. Yet ceaseless events from Ferguson, Missouri, Charleston, South Carolina, Charlottesville, Virginia, and the Standing Rock Reservation to Oak Creek, Wisconsin, Orlando, Florida, San Bernardino, California, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania are stark reminders of what our nation has always known, yet wants so very much to forget. In communities and municipalities, from sea to shining sea, all manner of social division and discontent from religion, ethnicity, and race to gender, sexuality, 
and social class is deeply and distressingly entrenched. We cannot seem to get away from wanting to hurt each other. In Washington, D.C., the root causes of citizens' anger are not hard to identify. Unattainable home ownership for those who once upon a time thought they would be there forever. Inequitable and unjust educational systems. Over-policing practices and prosecutorial decisions. Disproportionate incarceration and the collateral damage to families. Food and library deserts and health care disparities. Structural unemployment permanently assigned to select neighborhoods, precincts, and wards. All of this and more constitutes the divine discontent of many of my neighbors in that city. Meanwhile, civic amenities proliferated for the newest of residents. Streetcars, zip cars, ride share, bike share, segways, dog parks, green parks, green grocers, corner bistros, and so much more, all was telling the newcomers that you are welcome and rub salt into festering socioeconomic and racial ethnic wounds. The poles and prerogatives of power in the nation's capital are brazen and subtle, economic and unconscious. They are structural and they are interpersonal. Congress has veto power over the DC city budget. The dynamics of oppression operate with deadly intent. Economic and social apartheid drives the daily reality. This is not the picture of Washington, D.C. that one is typically going to hear. And I don't know if any of this even sounds familiar to you who live here among the majestic redwoods or along the ocean shorelines of the bay. But in moving to Kentucky, I have learned about the infamous Louisville slave pens that once lined the Ohio River. And why do I mention this? Because everywhere I have lived, in St. Louis, in the nation's capital, now in Louisville, in Atlanta, in my home of St. Paul, Minnesota, in Nashville, Tennessee, in Boston, Massachusetts, and many other places where we have resided. My wife is tired of moving. <laughs> but everywhere I've gone, I've noticed that there is a certain historical amnesia about how we have come to the place And in Louisville, I've learned about those slave pens 
that lined the Ohio River and how you may have heard the expression that the worst thing that could happen to an enslaved person during the antebellum period was to be sold down the river. Well, guess where that expression came from? It came from the place that elected to fight not on the side of the North, not on the side of the South, but sought to be neutral. But even in its neutrality, enslaved persons would be sold down the river into the bowels of the worst parts of our sordid history. Into the place where my mother and father came, Mississippi. But Louisville was also the place where in 1914 it established a segregation ordinance and then later neighborhood restrictive covenants and in the 21st century redlining and zoning. In other words, the, the point that I am making here is that on and on and on we seem to go. Our need to find ways to socially quarantine ourselves one from another. Xenophobia, our fear of the stranger, is the evidence of our manifold estrangements in our day and time. And if I have not learned much else about all of the places that I have lived in the United States, it is that we are deathly afraid of the other. Not realizing that often the otherness is resident within us. God has a dream for us. A dream about a world and a way of life that embraces all people from every background, condition, and circumstance. But we, as a world, we as a people, have to be courageous enough to embrace this, God calls us to proclaim the good news that leads to the transformation of our time. God calls us to bear witness to a new future that is filled with moral power and intelligence. All too often, it is our lack of compassion that confounds the world's marginalized and disinherited, our inability to speak truth to power and in love confuses God's people everywhere. Our pragmatism, our need to live our daily lives unencumbered only serves to disenfranchise others. We violate our divine connection. We displace people. We send them away. They live under highway overpasses. And we pass them by on the side of the road. And we see them not. God has a dream that we will have a different kind of world and nation. A rainbow humanity is who we are. 
And it is being lost in the spiral of violence and death that is relentless in our day and time. Black, brown, and white. Children, women, and men. Lesbian, gay, and straight. Fluid, transgender, and queer. The disabled, the assaulted, the harassed, the indigenous, the dreamer, and the asylum seeker. The Muslim, the Hindu, the Jew, and the Sikh. Migrants at our borders. Huddled masses yearning to breathe free. All are suffering the indignity of social pathologies not of their making. But they experience the consequences still. Ecclesiastes tells us in the good book that change is inevitable. And what is the change taking place in the United States of America? It is the change that has always been there. That we are multicultural, multilingual, gender diverse, interreligious, beautifully human, and exquisitely complex. We, the people of the United States, are in the throes of birth pains. It is a terrible thing not to know when the pangs of birth will cease and new life may begin. But for people of faith who believe in the dream of God that no human being can be estranged one from another, this is our opportunity. The most entrenched evils of our day, incivility, poverty, violence, Rape, homelessness, unemployment, mass incarceration, transphobia, and on and on. These are the things that have occupied our news. And they await from we who are people of faith our deepest response. Are we ready to establish by grace and through faith a new and better world? a more just and inclusive world? Do we care enough for each other, for ourselves, and for God? Do we care enough to be difference makers? Through the years, there have always been those who in times of crisis have found ways to be resourceful, to mobilize, to advocate, to create intellectual, moral, and social networks based on their belief in the infinite worth of human beings everywhere. There are several things that I would share with you that I believe in. I believe in the insurrection of subjugated knowledge. That's nice, fancy academic language. <laughs> I believe that life is intersectional. I believe that freedom is a constant struggle. That with every new generation, freedom has to be gained over and over again. I believe that justice is indivisible. I believe that God is with us. 
in this season of Advent. Emmanuel calls us to bear witness to the power of love. To revisit the dynamics of violence that seem to be racking our days. To counter forms of supremacy and patriarchy, state power and capitalist markets and the empirical policies of our days. These are not popular words to say. But then I do not follow one who was popular. I follow one who was called by God. And the calling is still the same. To join our knowledge of how we can do better with and for and among each other with a surpassing faith. To overcome our own worst fears in advancing the common cause, advocating for the poor and dispossessed, agitating for justice, waging peace, building a common humanity under a friendly sky. These are the things that call me to beat plowshares, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks to make the rough places plain, to engage in the kind of transcendent hope and prophetic advocacy that saves people's lives, that will save our nation, that will make us whole. The fervent prayers of the people of God. And that's everybody, everywhere, is for a better world and a better life. No one should be bereft, and yet so many are in our day and time. God's dream for we who are the church is that we will confess our contradictions, dare to transgress, practice compassion without end, Overcome the gross inequalities and great divisions of our day with our hearts and deeds and lives. God's dream for us is that we will transform ugliness and greed, poverty and squalor, alienation and disharmony, violence and hate into beauty and holiness fulfillment and serenity, equality and tranquility, love and life. For all of God's children deserve to be loved, none to be excluded, none to be forgotten, none to be treated as less than all to be embraced as belonging to God. This is the dream that the Nazarene shared, bringing to us the hope and fulfillment in a season of Advent. May God bless our strivings 
as we remember the one who came and died. And we, we do no less for everyone that we meet in our day-to-day -day existence. Hear our prayer. <laughs>